Thanks for listening to The Vine. We're a new church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this sermon helps you in doing that. Well, this morning we're continuing in our series called Stranger Things. We're actually coming to the end of it. I know uh, it's super sad for a lot of you. So that's okay. You can go back and listen to all the sermons in the past if you really so want to. Uh, this uh, sermon series has all been about uh, looking at some of the more bizarre stories of the Old Testament, believing that there's meaning and, and beauty and significance underneath the surface of these very bizarre and peculiar stories. And this is one of them for me. Uh, to begin, though, I, I want to begin by just thinking about this. Um, we don't meet many people nowadays who are very superstitious, right? Like superstition is not something that's really popular. But how many of us would choose not to walk up under a ladder? Like if the option was there. Uh, how many of us, if you knock over a salt shaker, do you find... The temptation just to toss a little over the shoulder, just in case. Don't be wasteful. I find that many people uh, are, you know, not overtly superstitious. But when it comes to sports, though, some people are very, very superstitious, especially baseball players. For whatever reason, are a superstitious bunch. You believe if you wear a certain hat, your team might win. This reminds me of one of my favorite scenes from uh, Silver Lines Playbook. Uh, my favorite scenes in this movie was of the father who was this compulsive gambler, especially when it came to the Philadelphia Eagles. And he believed that if what he did in his living room somehow affected the game, and he was very ritualistic about it, he had this certain chair that he would sit in, his wife would make the same snacks for him every single time. He would have three remotes that were perfectly lined up, and, and the most important thing is his son was supposed to sit right next to him. And maybe, somehow, maybe that would help the Eagles win, and maybe make him win some money as well. You can read Exodus 17 as Moses being really superstitious. That he could be up on this mountainside, and what he's doing with this staff, either having it raised or lowered, might affect the battle. You could almost see that in the story, but there's actually something more powerful going on. There's something more uh, compelling underneath this, the story that we find here in Exodus 17. Exodus 17 is actually two separate stories that are uniquely tied together. One story is a story about water coming out of a rock, and, and the other story is a story about a battle. And so even though our scripture reading was just of the second story, I'd like to kind of reel back uh, the tape a little bit and look at both stories as believing that there's a, a message that combines both of them together. So uh, this sermon is broken into three different acts. Act one, a trial. Act two, a staff. And act three, a banner. Uh, so let's begin with Act 1 to try. So Exodus 17, 1, the whole Israelite community is set out before the desert of sin, traveling from one place, uh, from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at a place uh, called Rephidim, which is actually the location for both of these stories. But there was no water for the people to drink. Uh, geography for the nation of Israel during this time, the geography tells the story. And it's really important for us to kind of get in our mind the geography. Because for us, the desert of sin really doesn't need much. Maybe Vegas? I don't know. 
So it doesn't really mean much. So let's, they're actually put up a map here that, that actually help us with this. So right here is, uh, let's see if it works. Perfect. Oh, there it is. Oh, there we go. All right, so right here is uh, Egypt. And so this is where the, the Hebrew nation spent many years as slaves. And uh, when God delivered them, God delivered them to go this way. The problem is that Pharaoh and his armies were coming after them. And there was this little thing called the Red Sea. <laughs> it was a bit of a problem. But God parted the ways and they began here and they crossed over the Red Sea and they went to a place called Mara and they went down here. We find ourselves here at Rephidim and we're about to move around here and go through Mount Sinai and up to the Promised Land. Uh, after, you know, 40 years of wandering around here, like, probably like that. But right here we are in Rephidim. And Rephidim is a place that they're somewhat early on in their journeys. They haven't, they haven't spent all that much time here in, in the desert. And uh, this is a total uh, cliche, but the story of Exodus really shares this, that the journey is so much more important than the destination. The journey of the people going through here was really more important because God had for them one single lesson. And until they learned this lesson, they would not be prepared. And the single lesson is, will you trust me? That was the only thing God cared about them learning. In verse 2, we see how difficult this will be. So in verse 2, they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. The favorite verb for the Israelite community will be between quarreling and grumbling. That's like their favorite things to do. It's their hobby, their pastime. Are we going to quarrel today or are we going to grumble? I say grumble. All right, let's grumble today. So they do this over and over again so naturally. The word quarrel, though, it actually, it actually has a, a legal definition. It's making a complaint, lodging a complaint. So mind you that these people have just spent years and generations as slaves, and God had done miraculous things to set them free. Mind you that they had just walked across the Red Sea on dry ground because God was passionate about them being set free. And here they are towards the beginning of their journey, and already they're beginning to lodge complaints and quarrel and grumble. It come, just so just came so naturally for, for them. And so Moses replied in verse 2, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there. And they grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst. I'm glad they got in that order that they put their livestock in front of their children. But why did you bring us out of Egypt just to make us die of thirst? So Moses is hearing this and his temptation is to do like all of us do. We just go up the chain, right? And we take the complaints and we just go up the chain. And so then Moses cried out to the Lord in verse 4. What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And I, I want you to see how God responds in this story. It's incredibly powerful. And the reason why this is incredibly powerful is there will be moments in our life where we are tempted to quarrel and grumble. And I want you to see how God responds to this. 
Uh, it might seem like a nuance, but it's really, really important. In verses 5 and 6, it goes on like this. The Lord said to Moses, Go out in front of these people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. In verse 6, I will stand there before you at the rock, by the rock at Horeb. This seems really, really subtle here. But if you were to study the language that's going on here, what God is doing here is God is calling for Moses and the elders and the community of the people to line up on either side. And God is saying, I will stand before you. God is pulling together a court scene with Moses and the elders on one side, with the people of God at the other God here, this, the key word to this in verse 6 is, I will stand there before you. In the Old Testament, God doesn't stand before anyone. No one calls God to stand before them. That was an act of a slave, or that was the act of a, of a defendant who had lodged complaints against them, and they show up to court. And so God is allowing a trial to happen. C.S. Lewis, he coined a phrase about this passage, that God stood at the dock. He stood at the place where someone would have to defend himself. God was put at the dock. And so all these accusations have mounted, and this court scene is here. And uh, eventually God would rename this place, in verse 7, God would rename this place, uh, a place of Masa and Meribah, testing and quarreling. And there he called a place Masa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? That was their question. That is what God was on trial for. Is God here? Is he with us? And here's a question for us I think that we really need to wrestle with is, do you think that God minds being tested? I've thought a lot about this lately. And my answer is, I don't think God minds being tested. God doesn't lead uh, people in deliverance up to the Red Sea if he didn't want to be tested. Right? Like, there's no out. He's cornered. They're, the chariots are behind you. And God provided the way. God doesn't lead a huge nation into a desert if he didn't want to be tested. I don't think the testing is the problem. I think that God loves deserts because it draws out a test. Will God provide for us? And also provides a test for you and I and people. Will we learn to depend and trust in God? And so this testing happens. I think what, what happened here, the reason... Uh, the, the key to not understanding this problem was their grumbling question. Is the Lord among us or not? I think this question right here pains the heart of God. Is God really with me? I think that was the issue in this situation. I think that was the main uh, question in the trial, and I think that is what, what God was really wrestling with his people is, have they not learned that I'm with them? Do they not believe that I'm trustworthy? I'm sure the Hebrew people, already at this point in their journey, so early on, 
I think they already were tired of having to trust in God. I think they were already done with having to depend on God. I'm sure that the Hebrew people were hoping that they would be delivered from Egypt and they'd be set out and like given a map from God and say, okay, just follow this map and head over there. That's the promised land. It'll be waiting for you. No problems, no conflict, no pain. But that's not the way with God. God doesn't send us some sort of roadmap and outsource his leadership and deliverance. God actually leads us into conflict God leads us into moments of desperation. God leads us into deserts, but God promises to be with us. And I think that's why this this scene, this question of trust was truly so painful for God. That God's peace is not a life without conflict. God's peace is his presence. And that is in the midst of conflict and pain and testing as we see. So how often might we slip into that kind of place where we quarrel with God? Has anyone been tired of having to trust in God? I mean, like, for me, I like the idea of trusting in God. But I have grown, there's some seasons in my life where I'm like, God, I just gotta be honest, I'm tired of trusting in you. And that's just an honest thing for me to say, but there's been times in my life where I'm just ready to graduate. For, for us, uh, a big... Uh, a big situation for us was our daughter Dylan. She, super cute girl at the age of two, and she developed this really cute twit, titch in her head where she'd kind of kick her head back every once in a while. We thought it was cute for a while, but all of a sudden, it got less cute, and it got a little concerning. And then we were like, hey, maybe we should go take her to a doctor. And within 24 hours, we were hearing words like epilepsy, seizures, brain damage. And our world just came crashing down. Here's a picture of us um, in, in that moment. I don't, I don't know if you have it. Okay, cool. So imagine us, like, blurry camera shaking because of sobbing and crying, you know, with this little angel. And so uh, at the age of two, we went into the hospital, and the doctor began using words like, uh, you shouldn't expect a normal childhood out of her. If she hasn't already had brain damage, she will have brain damage in the future. But you can try putting on her medicine. Okay, that, that sounds like a good option. So we uh, did that, and uh, actually she just stopped having seizures. And she didn't have them for years. And after a while, we went back to the doctor, and the doctor said, I don't understand it, but she looks like it, this has gone really well. Um, you need to know I was using this as a test case with my students because of how bizarre it is. Uh, and so for me, I, when I'm hearing this, I'm like, here we go. We're having a miracle, people, you know? And so the doctor said, well, okay, let's take her back in. Let's wean her off of medicine and see what happens. And I was so confident at the end of it, so confident that, uh, that the doctor would say, I have my whole script ready. She's been cured, and I say, well, actually, the verb is healed, not cured, you know, like, and I had this whole thing ready, and, and we sat down with the doctor, and the doctor looked at us after 24 hours of screening of brain activity, and the doctor said, here's the great news, she's not having seizures anymore. I'm like, ugh, I knew it, I knew it, and he said, but, I'm like, ugh, I don't want to buy it, but her brain activity is not so her brain functions in a, in a way that's really bizarre. And so we don't know what to make of that other than there's no guarantees. 
And so she could fall back into seizures. Who knows about it? Or later on I go, dang it. That's not what I want. Later on in that time in that hospital, just honest prayers. Uh, just to, to just the Lord and saying, hey God, uh, I think we have learned the lesson. <laughs> like, we're ready to move on now. We learned how to, to entrust our daughter to you. We learned how to depend on you. We learned how to give over the most beloved thing in our life to you because she's yours. Okay, we're ready to learn something else now. <laughs> As if like trusting God is not the best place for us to be. And being in a place where like we have to continue to depend on God is not a blessing. And so for us, like I know in our own life, we can grow weary of trusting God. I know the Israelite community, they were already going, we're thirsty and we're tired of having God to do something miraculous to quench our thirst. And I think for many of us, when life takes the left turn, we are so tempted to quarrel and to test God. But we see here that sometimes God allows a trial to happen. That leads us to the second act. Act 2, a staff. In verse 5, uh, the Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the leaders of Israel. Remember, he just said this, we just went through this. And take in your hand the staff with, with which you struck the Nile and go. Here for me, when I'm reading this story, these two different stories back to back, you see one of the key characters for Exodus chapter 17, and it's the staff. We see in both stories, we are both about the staff, which is interesting here because the staff is already really meaningful for the nation of Israel. They had seen the staff in a bunch of different ways, and it's like God said, out of all the different stories, I'm going to pull out the episode, episode 52, where the staff is used to strike the Nile. The staff was used uh, when Moses first had his encounter with Pharaoh, and he put the staff down and turned it into a serpent. The staff was used just when you reached his hands over the Red Sea and it parted waves. The staff was used in a bunch of different ways, and God's saying, I want you to take this staff and remember this is the staff that you used to strike the Nile, and I want you to come out here in this court scene. Here we find that God is trying to teach them something. The staff that was used to strike the Nile, this was in the many plagues that, that happened when they were back in Egypt, when God was trying to get the Pharaoh's attention that I am not just some small God, I'm a big God, and I'm saying, let my people go. And so, one of those plagues, God had Moses go to the Nile. And the Nile for Egypt was their source of life. Without the Nile, there's no life. Without the Nile, the Pharaoh and his kingdom would collapse. And so for them, it was the symbol of life, and it was the symbol of power. And with Pharaoh's stick, this staff, he struck the Nile and altered it into blood saying that this is God's form of judgment, that the life that you think that you have, the abundance that you have, with the hand of the staff, it can go away. This caught Pharaoh's attention. And so here, God is saying, hey, Israelite community, remember the staff that struck the Nile? Remember that episode? I want you to see this. In verse 6, he's, uh, uh, God told Moses to strike the, the rock. And water will come out of it for the people to drink. And 
so Moses struck the rock and then water poured out from the rock. So think about this. God said the same staff that took life and abundance and provision and it went away. Here in the desert, when there is no provision, where there is no life, that through God that there's always going to be provision. Even in the desert, if you have learned to trust me, know that wherever I am, there will be life. The safest place for you to be is where I am. And so for the people, they drank from the rock all of them. But the staff was a symbol for God's faithfulness and provision in the second story as well. We see this in the second story of Exodus 17. It goes like this. In verse 8, the Amalekites came. This is right after that passage. Right after that. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim, the same place. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand up on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Just a little small note. This is the first time the name Joshua has been mentioned in the Bible. This is, if you're reading the story, you'd go, oh, Joshua, who's that? And it just moves on. But we see here that uh, Moses and God are really interested that Joshua knows the whole story. And so as the story goes, the battle fills down here, and Moses goes up on the hillside with two trusted friends, Aaron and Hur. And he goes up on this hillside, and he has his staff, and not quite sure how he figures this out. But anytime the staff is raised over his head, the Israelite community begin winning the battle. And anytime it lowers, they begin losing. So they're winning and they're losing. Winning, losing, over and over again. And Moses begins to realize that and uh, begins to see this. So anytime that you're in a place where you can't help out someone, just try raising your staff. Just see what happens. I'm going to do that when Jen delivers our third kid. Bring him a broom up to the corner of the delivery room. Someone give me some apple juice with a bendy straw. Uh, but this went on and on and on until Moses' arms grew, grew tired. In verse 12, when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. If I, for them, I was like, how about two stones, one underneath both hands? Thanks for giving me a seat, but my arm still hurt, right? Aaron and Hur, they did this so that when Moses was lowered, that Aaron and Hur, we find this verse 12, held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. Why this picture is so beautiful and powerful, why I thought about this picture when I was thinking about the Stranger Things story, is that I love the fact that Moses was the greatest leader for the Hebrew people. He was a visionary, he had intimacy with God, but Moses needed others. He couldn't just bootstrap it on his own. He wasn't some independent force. That Aaron was always on his side and her was a trusted friend. For Moses to play his part, he had to have friends stand in the gap with him to raise his hands when he gets tired. And we are no different. We 
cannot play our role in this world by ourselves. It's not how God intended it. That we were created to walk alongside people who can help lift our hands when we grow tired. Even Jesus himself, he had disciples that he walked with, but he had three trusted friends that he would rely on in those intimate, desperate times to say, I want you to come into the garden and I want you to pray with me because these are my final hours. They were awful friends because they all fell asleep. But the message is that Jesus still needed it. And if Jesus needed it, if Moses needed it, how much more do we need that as well? In church, one of the most profound lessons I've ever learned is that we take turns for one another. That phrase, we take turns for, that might be underwhelming. It might just be obvious until you've experienced it. In church, we take turns for one another. The same face that holds the flowers celebrating a newborn will then be used to console the parents of the stillborn. The same vase that's used to welcome people into a new house, that same vase will move into a home with an empty nester who doesn't know what to do about sending their last kid to college. This vase will move from one house to another to another as an expression of love and support and care. Someday it's your day to give this vase away, and the next day it's your day to receive it. This is the gift of church. We take turns lifting the arms of one another, and we know that one day we're going to slide over and we're going to help carry the burden of the other. For us as a church, even this next year, we've like lifted up a handful of initiatives, things that we are going to make really important. One of those things is we're creating a care team, a team of people to help us be really intentional about caring for one another in critical times in our life. If that's your passion, if that's your burden, then I'd love to hear about you and to help you uh, jump in there and help out. But we take turns caring for one another. The second reason why I love this picture of Moses when his arm is raised up is when you think about this battle scene, how many soldiers were there fighting? You guys remember the story we just read? How many soldiers were there fighting? How many Amalekites were there fighting? What was the strategy that Joshua used to win the battle? We don't know. The story doesn't care about that. Where's the focus of the story? It's not on the battlefield. It's on the hillside. And what this tells us is there are battles that we will go through in life. And for us, we might be tempted to look at the enemy. We might be tempted to look at the the, the numerous opposition that's against us, but perhaps the place where our, our perspective should be is on the hillside, the hillside of prayer, petitioning God to step in for us. Maybe our focus should be on the hillside where friends can carry the burden that we're walking with. There are battles that are won on the battlefield, but there are battles that are won on the hillside. And this story is telling us that there are times where we need to change our perspective focus on the right thing. Which leads us to Act 3, the final. The banner. After the banner, uh, the battle was won, the Lord said to Moses, uh, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure Joshua hears it. Again, no one knows who Joshua is at this point. But why is it important for Joshua to know this? Joshua would be the most decorated warrior in Israel's history. 
Moses came to the end of his life and gave the mantle of leadership to Joshua. And Joshua then took it and went into the promised land and won the promised land for the people. And what Moses and God we find here, what God really wants Joshua to know is this is how the battle is won. This is how you win the battle. Joshua, even the word Joshua means the Lord saves. So this isn't the only name that's important in this message. Did you know that God receives unique names in different stories? In this story, we find that God's name is the Lord is my banner. Different times in the Old Testament, there's different stories. To be honest, there, there's some of us that might need to do a study of the different names of the Old Testament of God. Is there are times where God said, God is my healer. God is my refuge. God is my rock. There's names of God. God is my uh, good, uh, good, good shepherd. There's times in our life where we might need to call out on the name of God, particularly to the needs, needs of our life. God, I know that you're my rock. I need you right now because I feel like my, my feet are just sinking. I need you to be my rock. And here we find the Lord is our banner. What in the world does that mean? The Hebrew word for banner, it means to be raised high, to be lifted. So what would happen, what would happen in battles is in the heat of the battle, soldiers would come out, they'd march out with the banner. And what would happen is if a soldier got uh, separated, if they, got, they were kind of made vulnerable, they were kind of in the outskirts and they felt like they needed to return, with the rest of their soldiers, they would look for the banner. And wherever the banner was, that is where their, uh, that's, where, that's where safety was. That's where companionship is. That you knew you could run to the banner and people would be there to fight for you. So think about that in this situation. The Lord is my banner. Whenever I'm walking through life and I'm feeling vulnerable and exposed, that I can look to see where God is and rush to be where God is, believing that God's going to fight for me, God's going to defend me, God is going to win for me. And so for us, this is so beautiful, is that it's a symbol of, of power and of victory. The Lord is my banner. So the reason why these two stories go together is this. At the courtroom scene, where people were asking the question, is God among us? The story ends with saying, the Lord is your banner. You want to know if God is with you. That is your only hope. If the Lord is your banner, that's his name. So when we have these courtroom tests in our own life, why has God left us? Maybe we can declare, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is our warrior. His presence is known. He's fighting for me. He is with me. And that still is God, God's name. In this world where we're putting God on trial, asking similar questions like this, we need to remember that God was most clearly shown to us in Jesus. That we should have been put on trial, but Jesus stepped in our place. That we find in Jesus that, that when we remember that we feel like we're alone in the wilderness, we remember that Jesus went into the wilderness and experienced all of the need for God that any of us ever will have. The need for thirst that these people were tired of. Even Jesus on the cross, he declared that he too had thirst. Just as the staff struck the rock providing hope and provision for the people, so the Son of God was struck for you and I. Moses, whose arms were also raised, 
here till the sunset, soon to we find Jesus with his arms outstretched upon the cross till the sun went dark. And just like the focus is not on the battlefield, but on the hillside to see the victory won, so for us that we know that victory ultimately is given to us on the hillside of the golf where Jesus truly is the banner. The victory is won in Christ. That God's faithfulness and his provision is ultimately given to us there. So what I would say to all of us in closing is test God. I'd actually say to test God. Follow God into the desert, believing that God will show up and be your provider there. Don't test God with a grumbling spirit, but test God by walking into the battles and looking up to the hillside where your strength is, where your rock is. Depend on one another. Experience God's provision. He is your banner, and He is here. Let's pray.